So we're going to continue our teaching about what is the church. And so last night, we were digging into what is the word ecclesia? What does it represent? So we looked through the Old Testament and looked at how the word ecclesia is used. And would you believe it, in the Old Testament, the word ecclesia, as used in the Septuagint, is never translated as church. Would you believe that? It's always translated as assembly or congregation because it doesn't refer to a building, it refers to a group of people. And what were the characteristics of the people that we saw whenever the word ecclesia was used? Were these law-breaking, non-Torah-keeping people who started their own religion, or was it people that God had chosen for himself to keep his word, to keep his commandments? It was obviously the, the, the latter of the two. So today we're going to start in Romans 16.5, and we're looking at how the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament. So we looked at how it was used in the Septuagint. Now we're looking at how it's used in the New Testament. So 97% of the time, 98% of the time, the word ecclesia in the New Testament is translated as church. And so we looked last night at how the church does not even derive from the word ecclesia. It's a completely different word, kyriaki. So it's a completely different word. So let's look at Romans 16:5. We're going to start in verse 3 to get the context, but the key verse is verse 5. It says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Yeshua the Messiah, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And that word churches is the plural of ecclesia. Verse 5 says, Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So the word church in verse 5, that is the word ecclesia. So if we wanted to translate it correctly, we could say, likewise, greet the congregation or the assembly that is in their house. Were they meeting in these big, fancy, beautiful, ornate buildings? No. They were meeting in simple, humble dwellings, what you might call a congregation or a, a small gathering together that was in their houses. So here we see that the word ecclesia does not refer to a building, but it refers to the assembly, the group of people meeting together. And what do you suppose they were meet, meeting together to talk about? Yeshua, they were meeting together to talk about the Torah. Meeting together to, to, to discuss and read the scriptures and discuss the Torah. All right, let's go to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. Not Hebrews also, but Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2.12. The word ecclesia is used in verse 12. What word do you suppose it is? Assembly. It's the word assembly. So let's read verse 11 to get the context. Verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Notice the ones he calls brethren are the ones who are being sanctified. Is it people who are still living in the world, still living in their sins, people that don't give a, a rip about following the God or following his commandments? No, it's those that are being sanctified. And what does it mean to be sanctified? 
to be set apart, to be holy. What sanctifies us? Our faith uh, saves us, but how do we clean the sin out of our life? Through obedience. obedience, obedience to his commandments. And that's what faith leads to. Your faith and your love to God leads you to keep his commandments and to clean the sin out of your life. And verse 12 says, saying, and this is a quote. This is from Psalm 22, 22. It says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. So notice it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. And then in the midst of the assembly, the, the ecclesia, I will sing praise to you. So what two phrases do you notice are, are parallel there? The assembly and my brethren. The ones who are considered the brethren of, of the Lord. Let's go back to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, 22 and just see how it's used there. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. You all know what Psalm 22 is about. It's about the crucifixion. Let's just look at the context of how it's all used. We came last night and read Psalm 22:25, and I left 22 out on purpose because we were going to get to it later. Verse 22 says of Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to be obedient, to follow his commandments. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. So notice it talks about the descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, the offspring of Israel. What's the difference between Jacob and Israel, though? Jacob are those who have not yet repented, but Israel are those who have repented and come to the Lord by faith. Verse 24 says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. And then verse 25, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, the great ecclesia, and I will pay my vows before those who fear him. So those who fear him, those who the Lord calls my brethren, those are all part of the assembly, part of the ecclesia. What, my, what is translated in the New Testament as the church. So the assembly. And so what do you notice? What Over and over and over, what are you noticing characterizes the assembly, the ecclesia? Is it lawlessness or is it righteousness? righteousness. It's a call to righteousness. God is saying, if you're going to be part of my assembly, you're going to have to clean the sin out of your life. You're going to have to sanctify yourself. You're going to have to become my people through faith, but you're going to have to clean the sin out. You can't keep living a lifestyle of sin if you want to be part of God's ecclesia. Let's go to stay in Hebrews. Let's go to chapter 12. Does that mean that we're perfect? Absolutely not. We're not perfect. But at the same time, if we sin, what does the book of 1 John say? It says we have an advocate with the Father. But what does that mean we have to do? We have to repent. We have to come to God and repent. All right, Hebrews 12. There's some good stuff in here. Especially verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which, what? No one will see who? The Lord. But that's not why we came here. 
We came here for verse 23, but I want to start in verse 22. Verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church, that's the word ecclesia, of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Yeshua the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So in verse 23, it mentions the, the church, the ecclesia of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And so the, to, in order to come to that heavenly Jerusalem, all these different words that are used here, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, to Mount Zion, which is prophetic Jerusalem, all of those different things, how do we become part of that ecclesia of the newborn, or the firstborn who are registered in heaven? We have to come to the Lord by faith. By faith. By faith. Interesting note. In verse 23, do you see the phrase general assembly? That phrase caught my eye. Lots of phrases catch my eye, but this one caught my eye too. So I looked at it in the Greek, and the word general assembly, is that, or the phrase general assembly is actually one word. It's the word panagurus. You can spell it P-A-N-E-G-Y-R-I-S. Panagurus. And it's Greek word 3831. And you're going to love what the, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent of Panagurus is. It's Moed. Moed. Like the appointed times of the Lord. And it also, another equivalent of Panagurus, for instead, also in place of Moed, you can also translate it as Atzera. A concluding assembly. So notice it has those undertones that when you become part of that heavenly Jerusalem, notice it has those undertones of the feast and the festivals and those. Because what is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles called? Shemini Atzeret, the concluding assembly. And that word. Um, Panagurus carries that meaning of a concluding assembly, those, and it points us to the feasts and the festivals. Will we be keeping the feasts and festivals in the kingdom? Yes. How do you know? Daniel, can I ask a question? Yes. Okay, back in Psalm 22, I, I can't, I can't in hear my you. Office says, in, my, in Psalm 22, before we went to Hebrew, Yeah. there was a general a great assembly it said great assembly yeah and, and the difference is there a difference between that and the general assembly i mean are those the same words or is the great assembly referring to like the heavenly the millennial kingdom type thing well i mean that in back in psalm 22 where it talks about the great assembly that's that's the word ecclesia or in okay. greek in hebrew it would be the kahal so that would be okay. like the what's being translated as church what's in the New Testament. But in verse... Now we see general assembly. Yeah, it's, that's a... Com yeah, it's a completely different word. It's not the word ecclesia. It's the word panagurus. So the word church in verse 23... You're welcome. The word church in verse 23 is the word ecclesia. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. 
So how do we know that we'll be keeping the feasts and festivals in the kingdom? It says it in Ezekiel. Yep, let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 44, verses 23 and 24, tell us that what we'll be doing in the kingdom. So we read in Hebrews 12 how becoming part of that heavenly Jerusalem and part of that assembly, the, the ecclesia of the firstborn registered in heaven, is pointing us to the feasts and the festivals. Ezekiel 44, 23 says, and they, talking about the priests, it says, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws, that's my Torah, and my statutes in, what's that next word? All my appointed meetings. So all my appointed meetings, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, all of them, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So, will we be keeping the feast and the festivals in the kingdom? Absolutely. Will we be keeping Sabbath in the kingdom? Absolutely. Don't forget chapter 45, verses 17, 21, and 25. <laughs> Where it talks about all the different feasts and festivals, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, What's a good one we can look at? For, 17. Verse 17. All right, Ezekiel 45, 17. And then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. So this is the kingdom, and, and we're still keeping the feasts and keeping the festivals. You know, when you read in books like Hosea, I know in Hosea in particular, it talks about the Lord as punishment takes away the feasts and festivals. Not as, oh, you don't have to do these anymore, but he takes them away as a punishment because the people are not keeping them the correct way. So how, how did it turn from God take, took them away from the people as a punishment to, oh, God abolished them because they were such a burden? That, that the logic just doesn't doesn't line up. All right. So we've spent a lot of time looking at the word ecclesia and how it was used in the Septuagint, how it was used in the New Testament. Now we're going to look at a different word. We're going to look at the word synagogue, which you might translate as synagogue, and how the word synagogue is used in the scriptures. Because a lot of times what you'll see is the word ecclesia and the word synagogue are translated into the same English words as either assembly or congregation. So you kind of have to look into the underlying language to see which word is used. So what you'll see is these words are very similar in nature and kind of used interchangeably. They have not too much different. So let's look at how the word synagogue is mostly, or synagogue is mostly translated in the scriptures. So let's start at Luke. Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> and the way it's translated, a lot of times, the word synagogue is translated to give it a very Jewish feel. 
And you'll see what I mean when we look at some of the different translations of how the word is translated. All right, Luke 4, 16. So he, talking about Yeshua, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So the word synagogue is from the Greek word synagogue. And that word synagogue, you can spell it S-Y-N-A-G-O-G-E. Very similar to the word synagogue. The only difference is the word synagogue has a U in it. The word synagogue, the Greek word synagogue, has the U left out of it. And it's Greek word 4864. And that word synagogue is the equivalent in the Hebrew of the word kahal, which is spelled Q-A-H-A-L. But it's also the equivalent of the Hebrew word edah. Edah. E-D-A-H. Edah. And that's Hebrew word 5712. And that word edah in the Old Testament, when we're going to look at some of these scriptures in just a moment, is most of the time translated as either congregation or assembly. Just like kahal. So you have to look at is it the word kahal or is it the word edah? Because most of the time they're translated exactly the same way. But one thing you'll notice, it's never in the Old Testament translated as synagogue or church. When is the word synagogue used translated as synagogue? Only in the New Testament. So that's just something, something interesting to keep in mind. All right, Acts 17, 12. So we saw how the word synagogue is used, and it says Yeshua's custom was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So you could translate it as the congregation or the assembly on the Sabbath day. Okay, let's go to Acts 17, 12. So we looked at Yeshua's custom. Now look at Paul's custom. It says, then Paul... Acts 17.2, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So, actually it's verse 1 that has the word synagogue. It says, When he passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, he, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. So that word synagogue, that's the word synagogue. Which could be translated congregation or assembly, but they chose to choose to use synagogue because it has a Jewish connotation. So we looked at just a few scriptures that where the word synagogue is used. So I want to go back to the Old Testament. I want to look at how is the word synagogue used in the Septuagint. And remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So you have to you have to look at how the word is used in the Hebrew, and then you have to find how it's used in the... It's kind of a tricky process because there's not really a good interlinear Septuagint. So you have to do a little bit of digging, but you can find it. So let's start at Genesis 28. We're not going to look at every instance where the word synagogue is used, but we're going to get enough to just look at enough to get a, get a flavor of how the word is used. Genesis 28.3. So this is Isaac talking to Jacob. 
And verse 3 says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples. Which word do you think is, comes from the word sunagoge? Assembly. The assembly of peoples. And that word assembly comes from the Hebrew word kahal. So in Hebrew, it's the word kahal. In Greek, from the Septuagint, it's the word sunagoge. So if you wanted to translate it as synagogue, you could say that you may be a synagogue of peoples. But that doesn't really carry any kind of meaning. But the word assembly does. Because that pictures droves and droves and droves of people coming from Jacob. And of course we know that it's talking about people coming to faith. Alright, let's look at Genesis 35.11. Genesis 35.11. All right, again, this is to Jacob. It says, Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Which word do you suppose is synagogue? Company. Company. So that word company is the Greek word synagogue. In Hebrew, it's the word kahal. So that word company can, is the word kahal. So we've seen the word sunagoge translated as assembly and as company or a, a group of people. All right, let's go to Genesis 48.4. Genesis 48.4. Let's start in verse 3, but the key verse is 4. It says, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply and make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. The phrase multitude of people, that word multitude, that's from the word sunagoge. It's from the Hebrew word kahal, but it's the Greek word sunagoge. So I will make you a assembly of people, a company of people, a multitude of people. So there again, it gives you the idea that a synagogue or a sunagoge, is it referring to a building or is it referring to a group of people? It's referring to a group of people. It's not referring to a building, it's referring to a group of people. The, assemble, the people that assemble there. The building is just where they meet, but the real synagogue or the real ecclesia or the real synagogue is the people that meet together, the assembly of people. And when, it's, when Jacob is blessing Joseph and telling them, I will, talking how the Lord blessed him and said, I'll make you a multitude of people, that's a promise of people coming to faith through Messiah. Because... How can you have descendants as numerous of the, as the stars? It's all these people that are grafted in by faith. 
So it's talking about this assembly of people who are not just physical descendants, but people who are being grafted in by faith. All right, let's go to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. So Exodus 12 is about the Passover. There are several places in Exodus 12 where the word sunagoge is used if you look at the Septuagint, but I wanted to use verse 19 in particular because it talks about the stranger, talks about the gerim. Verse 19 says, For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leaven, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. The word congregation, that's the word sunagoge. And it comes from the Hebrew word edah, E-D-A-H. So the word congregation, it's referring to those who had the faith, who put the blood on the doorpost. But it says, it, but the Lord's talking to them and saying, if you don't keep this feast of unleavened bread, it says, you will be, it says that person will be cut off from the congregation. And does he make a distinction between the native born and the, the stranger, the gare who's grafted in? He makes no distinction. It says whether he is a stranger, and that word stranger is gare or garim, or a native of the land. So what would motivate the people to keep this feast to the Lord every year, year in and year out? It's their faith. If they believe the Lord and they believe in his promises and they know he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, are they going to continue to do this year after year? Absolutely. And was it just native-born people of Israel who kept this feast? Absolutely not. Was it the only the native-born is Israelites who put the blood on their doorpost? No. Absolutely not. Because if you look over in verse 38 of Exodus 12, it says, A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. So it wasn't just native-born Israelites who left the land of Egypt. It was also a great mixed multitude. And that word congregation, like I said, the word congregation is the word sunagoge, or the word in Hebrew is edah. What did you add verse 49? Verse 49. Verse 49 of, he of Exodus 12 says, One law shall be for the native-born and the stranger, that's the gear, who dwells among you. So it, when they become part of the congregation, part of that sunagoge, that assembly, that multitude of people, how many different laws are there for each people? There's one. There's just one. Doesn't that read very similar to what Messiah said in John 10 where he said there will be how many flocks? One flock. There will be one flock and they'll follow how many shepherds? One. one shepherd. We might get to that here in a little bit, I think. Possibly. If not, we'll just have to flip over there and see it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's coming up, don't worry. Alright. Exodus 16. Exodus 16. We're going to read verses 22 through 30. 
key verse is 22. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two almers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. The word congregation there in verse 22, that's the word sunagoge, or in Hebrew it's the word adah. So this congregation that came out, of, we just read about this congregation in, in chapter 12. Who did it consist of? It was the, na the native born and the stranger who chose to graft themselves in to the people of Israel, the congregation of Israel. And what is God expecting them when it comes to Sabbath? Let's look at verse 23. It says, Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourself all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. What do we call that? What did they lack? Faith. faith. They lacked faith. Do you think God is going to say, well, that's okay, they just slipped up new. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore... He gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And that's what it means to, to Shabbat. It means to rest. And so God had commanded the people, don't go out and try to gather. There will not be any. And what did the people do? They went out and tried to gather anyway. And so what did that show on the, on the part of the people? They did not believe God. And doesn't that read exactly like what Hebrews 3 says? The people couldn't enter into the land because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Let's look over at Hebrews 3 real quick. Hebrews 3. So that verse we just read, that was before Exodus 20, before the Lord descended on Mount Sinai and, gave, and spoke the ten words and gave the rest of the Torah to Moses to give to the people. But notice the commandments and the laws already existed. Exactly. The laws already existed. The Sabbath already existed. It wasn't an afterthought. Hebrews 3.16 It says, For who having re heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who what? sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not what? Obey. obey. So are you noticing here, those who sinned were those who did not obey. And what do you suppose they did not obey? Was it just they didn't obey the laws of the land? No. They did not obey God's commandments. Verse 19, it says, So we see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. A lack of faith. So they couldn't enter in because they did not lack, because they lacked faith. 
And that's exactly what we're seeing here in Exodus 16 is God told them, don't go out and gather on the Sabbath. And what did the people do? They went out and gathered on the Sabbath. And keep in mind, this is the congregation. This is the, the assembly of God that is supposed to be the ones who are following God, have their full faith in God. Are they acting like God's people right here? Absolutely not. So we're seeing that in they're called God's congregation. They're called the congregation, but when they lack faith, are they part are they acting like his congregation or his assembly? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. All right, let's go to Leviticus 19. <clears throat> Leviticus 19. We'll start in verse 1, but the key verse is verse 2. Leviticus 19.1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak, all, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So what was the first words out of the Lord's lips to the congregation of the children of Israel? It was, be holy, for I am holy. The word congregation is the word sunagoge. And it comes from the Hebrew word adah. So a lot of times the word adah in Hebrew is translated as the word congregation. So that's the synagogue, the sunagoge of the children of Israel. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Those words sound very familiar, don't they? What were you going to say? Does adut come from that same verb? Does adut come from that same word? I didn't look to see, but... It sounds like it would. Mm-hmm. Okay. I haven't looked, so I can, I can look and come, and come back to you on that one. Um, all right. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Those words sound very familiar, don't they? Mm -hmm. Where do we see those words again? Leviticus 11 and Hebrews right Ah, okay. So let's go to Leviticus 11. So God's charge to the people. He says, Be holy, for, the Lord your, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So he's talking to his assembly, his sunagoge, his congregation, and saying to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45. Say, for I, the Lord your, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So what did the Lord, through Moses, give to the people in Leviticus 11? These are the things you can eat. These are the clean and these are the unclean animals. And he says, if you eat anything that is unclean, he says in verse 44, it says you defile yourself. That means you literally make your soul unclean. You make your soul unclean. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this before. 
is it the animal that makes you unclean? It's not the animal that makes you unclean. What is it? The Lord tells us in Mark 7. He says it's the attitude of the heart. Because if God said, don't eat this because it's unclean, and we say, Lord, I don't care what you say, I'm going to eat it anyway, what does that make it? That makes it unclean. Because it's the attitude, the uncleanness comes from the attitudes of the heart. So when God says, don't do something, and you say, I don't care what you say, God, I'm going to do it anyway, that defiles your soul. That's what makes your soul unclean. But then, but then at the same time, when you see a pork chop, you should look at it and go, ew, icky, that's gross. Because that, that spirit of God within you is telling you, stay away from that. Don't eat that. So we, saw it, we see it in Leviticus. So somebody might say, well, that's Old Testament. But Peter says the same words in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Key verse is verse 15 or 16, but we're going to start in verse 13. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Verse 13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as obedient children. Obedient children. Obedient to who? To God. to God. Obeying His commandments. Not conforming yourselves after the former lust is in your ignorance. That means when you didn't know better and you were living in the world, but now that you do know better, you should be living for God. Verse 15 says, But as He who is called you is holy, you also be holy in some of your conduct. What's that say? Be holy in all of your conduct. And... <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. And that word conduct comes from the word halak, where we might say the word halakha, which means how you walk, how you conduct yourself. So be, be holy in all your walk, in all your conduct. Verse 16, here's why. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Where is that from? Well, my footnote down here says it's from Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, and Leviticus 20. So on the word of two or more, let all things be established. So we have three places that Peter is quoting from that tell us to be holy for I am holy. And one of them is the place that tells us, eat this, don't eat this. So Peter being a rabbi, he's going to point us back and expect us to put it in context. What is the context of be holy for I am holy? Well, one, we looked at Leviticus 11. Two, we looked at Leviticus 19. When the, when the Lord tells the congregation, tells his people, be holy for I am holy. So what does God expect of his people? He expects holiness. He expects people to, be, to clean the sin out of their lives. That's what he expects. It was it, is it any different when we look over here in 1 Peter? Is 1 Peter saying, I know I'm quoting from Leviticus, but just ignore all that stuff, but just cherry pick this one part right here. Nope. This part that says be holy. No, 
There's context to that. God said, don't eat this, it defiles your soul, so therefore be holy because I'm holy. And in Leviticus 19, God, what's the context? God says, you're my people, therefore you be holy. So we have to go back and we have to look at the context from where Peter is pulling this. So do you suppose Peter, who saw the vision in Acts 10, saw that vision and said, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, but then turns around and has a ham sandwich. This is the same Peter that's quoting from Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 19 saying, if you're going to be God's people, you've got to be holy. You've got to be set apart. You've got to be different from the world. And that's what he's telling him. He's saying, don't conform yourself to the world. Don't, because that you lived like that when you didn't know any better. But now you know better, so stop living like that. And Peter is also the same one who says in 2 Peter 2, he says, if you tasted the heavenly gift, if you partook of that and you turn away, he said, it's better that you never knew the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn away from it. He says it's not, the, the end of that is not going to be good. All right, let's go to number 16. Number 16. Number 1622. <clears throat> Number 1633, sorry. Number 1633. All right, we all know what number 16 is about. It's about the rebellion of Korah. Did it end well for Korah? Yeah. No. Verse 31, we're going to read verses 31 through 33. It says, Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the, Lord, that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So they and all those with him went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. So what was God saying? They are not part of my people. They're not part of my assembly. So what happened? They were cast away. It says they perished from among the assembly. And that word assembly and number 16 is the word um, synagogue. And it comes from the Hebrew word kahal. So they perished from among the kahal, the synagogue. Numbers 20. Numbers 20. Verse 4. Might as well start in verse 2. It says, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, 
If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. What's that? You better be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. Verse 4 says, Why have you brought us, brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Okay, the reason I picked this one is because of the irony. Here are the people complaining against Moses, but really when they're complaining against Moses, who are they complaining against? They're complaining against the Lord. What did they call themselves right there? They called themselves the assembly of the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness to die? You know Moses is sitting there listening to that going, y'all... Y'all are not acting like the assembly of the Lord. So I thought there was great irony in the people calling themselves the assembly of the Lord because in order to enter the assembly of the Lord, we just read in Leviticus 19, the Lord said, if you're going to be part of my congregation, you're going to have to be holy. You're going to have to be set apart. But you also have to enter in by faith because that's the very essence of faith. Let's go over to Hebrews 11.6. That's the very essence of faith. If you want to be part of God's congregation, you have to enter it by faith. Was God going to let his people starve to death in the wilderness? No. No. Was God going to let his people thirst to death in the wilderness? Absolutely not. He brought them into the wilderness. Is he going to let them die in the wilderness? So the people who are murmuring and complaining, saying, why have you brought the congregation of the Lord into the wilderness to die? Were they really part of the congregation of the Lord? No. Because what did they lack? They lacked faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, that means that He exists, and that He is a rewarder of everybody. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? It says he is a rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. Those who diligently seek him. And if you look at the underlying Greek of that word, it means to search carefully or to crave. So it's like you have to want to seek him. But it says if you do, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Those who search after him carefully. Those who crave a closer walk with him. And that word please in verse 6, that comes from the Hebrew word hit halek. That means you, you make a conscious choice to walk with God. So without faith, it's impossible to cause yourself to walk with God. Because if you don't have faith, which way are you going to go? Wherever you want to go. You're going to go whichever way that, you're, that you choose to go. And that's exactly what the people back in Numbers chapter 20 were doing. They were calling themselves the congregation of the Lord, but what did their actions show? The complete opposite. They were not the congregation of the Lord. Because had they been the congregation of the Lord, would they be complaining to the Lord, hey, Lord, you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt where we had all these wonderful things. We had all these cucumbers and we had all these leeks and garlic and meat to they were no they were in harsh servitude they were starving to death they were dying and god brought them out and here they are complaining so they acknowledge them with their mouth but their heart is far from them. right yep hmm. 
honor me with their lips, but their heart is from, far from me. Teaching and doctrine, the commandments of what? Men. Amen. That's it. So is it any different now than it was then? No. It's no different. It's just a lack of faith. Psalm 40. Psalm 40. We read Psalm 40 verse 9 last night about the good news of the gospel to the great assembly. And I want to read verse 10. Because it also uses the word great assembly, but it's not the same uh, Greek word. Verse 10 says, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. That word assembly, that's the word synagogue. So in verse 9 is the word ecclesia. In verse 10 is the word synagogue. But it comes from the Hebrew word kahal. So, I have not concealed your loving kindness nor your truth from the great assembly. So, who are the ones who hear about all the great things? And we read in verse 9 about how that's talking about the gospel. How it's talking about the, the salvation, the faithfulness, the loving kindness, the truth, the righteousness of God. Who accepts those truths? Is it just anybody or is it people that want to be part of his congregation? Part, that want to be part of his assembly? So the Hebrew words in 9 and 10 are both kahal. They're both the kahal. word is translated differently. Right, correct. So in verse 9, it's the, word, the word assembly is the word ekklesia. If we look at the Septuagint, that's the Greek. And in verse 10, the word assembly is from the Greek word synagogue. But they're both from the Hebrew word kahal. <clears throat> Why they chose to do that, I have no idea. But it does seem like an all-encompassing term, doesn't it? Like that, that's who the good, the good news is preached to. It's preached to everybody. Psalm 74. Psalm 74. We'll start in verse 1 to get context. But then we'll see verse 2. Verse 1 says, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? What would cause God to be so angry that it would seem like he has cast off his people forever? Sin. The sin of the people. Did God, is God going to cast off Israel forever? Absolutely not. There's going to come a time when Israel repents and comes back to God. But... You can imagine the grief. This is the grief of the, of the psalmist speaking, Lord, why have you cast us off forever? That would be just the grief of, Lord, it seems like we're no longer your people. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? But like I said, what would cause God's anger to come against the sheep of his pasture? Sin. Verse 2, remember your congregation. That word is sunagoge. comes from the word adah which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed. 
this Mount Sion where you have dwelt. So the psalmist is, is calling God to remember. Has God forgotten? No. It's more for the psalmist. But the psalmist is saying, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. So remember your people, those that are your people, the ones who are going to dwell with you in Mount Sion. And what, again, what is Mount Sion? That's prophetic Jerusalem. That's talking about the kingdom. And we read about that in Hebrews 12 just a moment ago. So the ones who have the anger and the smoke of the Lord against them, are those the ones that are still part of his congregation? Unfortunately, no. All right, so we looked at not every instance, but we looked at several places where the word synagogue is used in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint. So now we're going to look at how synagogue is used in the New Testament. So most of the time, the word synagogue is translated as the word synagogue. But there are other places where the word synagogue is not translated as synagogue. So let's go to Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. We're going to read verses 42 and 43. So Paul has just spoken to all the people in the, the city of Antioch on the Sabbath day. Verse 42 says, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, that, that's the word synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Notice it didn't say the Gentiles begged that the words might be preached to them the next Sunday. So you preach to them on the Sabbath, come to us tomorrow on Sunday and preach to us. What did they say? Come on the next Sabbath. Verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, do you see the word Congregation. That's the word synagogue. It's the same word in verse 42 translated as synagogue. So in verse 42, it was translated as synagogue. In verse 43, it's translated as congregation. It's the same word. Now, when the congregation had broke up, broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded to continue in the grace of God. On the, verse 44, on the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Where did they gather together? They gathered together in that great assembly, in what they refer to as the synagogue. But we also see how the word synagogue can be translated as assembly or the congregation. It's an assembly of believers. It's an assembly of... Of course they're going to meet in a building, but it's going to be a group of like-minded individuals. It's going to be a people who are there to, to worship God and to praise God. And was this all Jewish people? No. It says the whole city. So if it's the whole city, it's going to be Jews and non-Jews alike. Because in verse 42 it said, The Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So notice the word synagogue and the word congregation. It's the same word, synagogue. So we saw in the Septuagint how the word synagogue is translated as assembly, a company, a multitude, a congregation. But what is it never translated as? It's never translated as church 
or a synagogue or as a building. It's talking about a group of people, a group of people who are coming together as believers. All right, let's go to James 2. You knew this one was coming, didn't you? Hmm. James 2. At some point. <laughs> at some point. You, ju- you just looked at the notes, didn't you? All right. James 2. I'm going to start in verse 1, but the key verse is verse 2. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For, there, for if... There should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you sit there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In verse 2, the word assembly, that's the word synagogue. So every other place, almost every other place in the New Testament where the word synagogue is used, they translate it as synagogue. But really, a good translation for synagogue is assembly, a congregation, a group of like-minded believers. So James is telling them, if you're going to be God's synagogue, God's assembly, God's ecclesia, you cannot have partiality. You cannot say favor one person because they have more money over somebody else who doesn't have any money. So he's saying don't hold that faith that you have with partiality. So if you're going to be part of God's assembly you have to view, view others the way the Lord views them and that's without partiality. And then if you continue reading down through James... Verse 8 says, But if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit or work sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So this is James continuing to talk to the believers, the people that are calling themselves the assembly of God. And is he telling them to break God's law? He's saying, if you do, if you break one commandment, you've broken the whole thing. So, does that mean that we can ever earn our salvation by keeping the commandments? No. By relying on our faith in ourselves? No. I'll tell you one thing, I don't have a whole lot of faith in myself. So, I know if I break a commandment, I'm, I'm toast if I try to rely on myself. So, that's why we have to have faith in the Lord and do the best we can. And if we do mess up, if we do sin, what does the scripture say we must do? Repent. Repent. Turn back to God. Turn back to God. But if you understand that obedience is better than sacrifice, that helps you live a little bit better. Because if you understand that every time... 
I mean, you know, you think about every time you sin, you know, you should visualize the Lord dying for your sins on the cross, thinking about that, that sacrifice that he made for you. I mean, that makes you want to sin a, a whole lot less because he suffered and died for us so we didn't have to, to, to suffer that, that death. But if we choose to live in our sins and we choose to ignore that, what are the wages of sin? Wedge, wages of sin or death. All right. So we looked at the word ecclesia. We looked at the word sunagoge. So the next part I want to look at and spend a little bit of time looking at is wait. Doesn't, doesn't the church, quote-unquote, replace Israel? Oh. So we're going to look at scriptures that show who is Israel. What is, what, when we see the word Israel, when we see the congregation of Israel, when we see the kahal, the congregation of Israel, what is that referring to? Is it referring to the physical descendants or is it referring to something more than that? So let's, let's start with Deuteronomy 6. We're going to build a foundation here. So Deuteronomy 6. So, of course, you know the answer to the question, does the church replace Israel? And I put the word church in italics. Does the church replace Israel? Of course, you know the answer is no. But we're going to look at why. How do we know that it doesn't? Deuteronomy 6.4 is the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is how many? One. One. So how many lords are there? There's one lord. There's not a Lord for this group of people, and there's not a Lord for this group of people. There is one Lord. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there's one Lord. Let's go to John 10. John 10. <clears throat> We're going to read verses 14 through 16. So maybe Messiah, maybe he said something different. That was the Lord in the Old Testament. So maybe Yeshua here in the, in the New Testament, maybe he's got something different to say. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by, the, by, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Does he say I'm going to start a new fold? Does he say I'm going to start a new... I'm going to put another shepherd over here for this group. There will be a shepherd for this group. There will be a shepherd for this group because there's going to be a completely different fold. He says... And other sheep which I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be, then there will be one flock and one shepherd. How many flocks? One. one. How many shepherds? One. One flock, one shepherd. So we looked at Deuteronomy 6, there's one Lord. And when the scribes and Pharisees, when they came to Yeshua and said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? Hear, O Israel, the, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your mind. So he quoted to them Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. So he said there's one God and you've got to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, and you're not doing either. That's what he told them, basically. And then verse 16 of John 10 says there's one flock, one shepherd. So they've already got the rocks in their hands. Verse 29, verse 30 actually, verse 30, the Lord tells them, they say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And you can just see Yeshua go, I've already told you. And verse 30, he says, I and my father are what? One. Echad. One. Now, you got to be careful what you read in, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Commentaries. you got to be careful what you read in commentaries. Concerning this verse, the Thayer's Greek lexicon, which is not a commentary, it's just a lexicon of how a word is used. They say the word one here means to be united most closely in will and in spirit. Is that what Yeshua is saying? The Father and I are closely united in will and in spirit. Is that what he's saying? Okay, if that was the case, verse 31, then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Would they stone him if he said, my Father and I think alike? No. No. And they tell him, they say, we're not stoning you because of good works that you're doing, verse 33, but you being a man, make yourself God. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was saying. He's saying, you're calling yourself God. So that's how he's able to have one flock. That's how he's able to be the shepherd because he is the Lord. That, that, that does not conflict in any way with Deuteronomy 6, 4. Because there's one Lord, there's one shepherd, there's one flock. It doesn't conflict in any way. All right, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. We're still building a foundation here. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe somebody needs to hear it. <coughs> Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37, that's the new covenant or the renewed covenant. And I want you to pay attention carefully to who the covenant is made with. Verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a brit chadashah, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Where's the church? Grafted into the they're grafted in. So the ecclesia, that group of called out believers, they are grafted in. We would say the, the, they are becoming part of Israel. To make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So notice it doesn't even mention the house of Judah right here. It says the house of Israel. So this is the 
This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Does it say I will put a new law? I will put a new, or I will put no law in their minds. No, it says I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And I wanted to read verses 35 through 37 because this is the Lord kind of saying, because I said so. Verse 35 says, For thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, in case you forgot. Verse 36, it says, If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. So the Lord said, if the sun stops giving its light and goes away, and the moon and the stars, they all go away, and the sea starts to... How many of you are worried that the sea levels are just going to keep rising and rising and rising until it just takes over? Nobody is. Nobody is. Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. So if those things, those ordinances, those things that God has set in place cease, then what does that mean about Israel? Israel's no more from being a nation before me. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, how many of us can measure the heavens above? Nobody. And the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. So what is God saying right here? Is there ever a chance that God is going to cast off Israel? Not a chance. Not a chance. Not a chance. So all these people chanting from the river to the sea, they're toast. They need to change their chant. I told Candy this morning, I said it needs to be from the river to the sea. Israel will always be. There it is. Isaiah 66. Let's look there real quick. Isaiah 66. And Isaiah 66 is particularly important because it's the new heavens, it's the new earth, it's eternity, future. Isaiah 66, 17 says, You better not eat, be eating a ham sandwich when the Lord comes back. Verse 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I shall make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So even into eternity future, will the moon and the sun still be there? Absolutely, because what's the purpose of the sun and the moon and the stars? To time the Moed. That's been established all the way back from Genesis 1 to establish the times for the the feast and the festivals. So for those people to say in the in eternity future there won't be a sun or there won't be a moon, scripture doesn't say that. It says there won't be a need because the the light of God's glory will illuminate everything brighter than the sun. 
but it doesn't say that the sun and the moon go away. It tells you right here that they, they stay right where they're at. All right, let's go to Romans 9. So the, covenant, the new covenant is with Israel. And Israel will never, ever, ever be cut off. Never go away. So where do we fit in? Romans 9. Verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> Romans 9.6. Did I say 6.9? If I did, I, I, I'm sorry, it's 9.6. So Romans 9.6. Romans 9.6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, I want you to think about that. I bet when Paul spoke that statement, I bet it knocked, if, if they were wearing socks, it would have knocked them off. Because they would have been like, what? For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. So Paul is saying, just because you claim to be a descendant of Abraham, that doesn't mean you are. And notice what Paul says. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Who is Isaac? Is Isaac the son of the flesh or the son of the promise? promise. He's the son of the promise. He, we could also say he's the son of faith. Because when Abraham and Sarah were told, or when Abraham was told, you're going to have a son, was, were they given a son in the first year? Nope. The second year? Third year? Fourth year? Fifth year? Okay, here rolls around 12, 13, 14 years, and, and Sarah says, well, you know what? We need to help God. So here's my handmaiden, and what came out of that? Ishmael, the son of the flesh. How well has that worked out for everybody? So when they waited and had the faith that God said, you're going to have children as numerous as the stars, that's where Isaac comes in. And how many years after the promise was Isaac born? 30. So it was a while. It was a while. Verse 8, it says, That is, those who are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So all throughout the, the scriptures where we were seeing the, the called out assembly, the, the congregation, the ecclesia of God, are those children of the flesh or are those children of God? They're supposed to be children of God. But when they start acting like the world, are they considered God's called out assembly? Not a chance. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. So God said, I'm coming back at this particular time and Sarah will have a son. And did, did that happen? Absolutely, it happened exactly the way God said it was going to happen. So, the children of Israel are of faith. Not of the flesh, but of faith. Okay, let's go to Romans 11. Romans 11. So, how do we become part of Israel? By faith. How, do we, how does that happen? Verse 13 says, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. 
if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are in my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be from li- but life from the dead? For, the first, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So for all these people that say the church has replaced Israel, I would call that boasting against the branch, boasting against the branches. And the Lord gave through Paul gave a very stern warning. He said, "Remember that you do not support the root, the root supports you." And it keeps going. Verse 19 it says, "You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in." Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by what? Faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Haughty means to be proud, to be arrogant. But if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail, severity. But toward you, goodness. And I have this part underlined in my Bible. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So if you turn from your righteousness and start committing iniquity and fall into unbelief, what does God say will happen to you? You'll be cut off as well. Verse 23, it says, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So how are those, what does it all hinge on? Does it all hinge on your physical birth or your spiritual birth? It's your spiritual birth. Notice Paul never said that you have to be a physical descendant to be grafted in. He said you're grafted in by faith, you're broken off because of your lack of faith. It all hinges on your faith. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. You have faith, you're grafted in. You have no faith, you're broken off. And what was that you said? Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Let's look at Galatians 3. And this goes right, al- this goes right along with what he was saying. Yes. Did you have a question, Pat? No, sir. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. All right. Galatians 3. We'll read verses 5 through 9. It says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Isn't that exactly what Paul said back in Romans? Yep, verses 26 to 29. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So talking about faith. It all hinges on faith. That's how you become part of Abraham's seed. That's how you become part of the children of Israel is by your faith. And let's add to that Ephesians chapter 2. It doesn't use the children of Israel, but it uses the phrase the commonwealth of Israel. We'll start in verse 8. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So was Torah an afterthought? Was Torah something that, oh, these people are messing up, i got to give them something. Oh, no, plan B. No. It says these works were created beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what changed? What made the, the, those that were called uncircumcision in the flesh, what caused them to become part of the commonwealth of Israel? It was their faith. And that's why I started in verse 8, because verse 8 says you're saved by your faith. You become part of the commonwealth of Israel by your faith. And that was a gift of God. Verse 13 says, But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances or dogma. Those are man-made rules and regulations. Who said that Jewish people can't associate with non-Jewish people? Rabbi. It was the rabbis. It's the man-made rules that kept people separated. And if those people are separated, what cannot be spread across the world? The gospel. That's why... God had to appear to Peter in that vision and say, I've called no man common or unclean. So he said, go preach the gospel to the nations. So, verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So, do we have that peace today? Is there, is there still a middle wall of separation? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. And I believe there's one in our Bible, and it's that little piece of paper that says the New Testament. But, verse 16, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity, not the commandments, the enmity, that hatred that separates the two people. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by how many spirits? One, One spirit to the Father. One spirit. And it doesn't that go right along with what we were just reading about Deuteronomy 6. There's one Lord. There's one shepherd. 
There's one flock. There's one spirit leading us to the Father. Verse 19 says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but what? Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So notice the congregation of Israel is synonymous, or the commonwealth of Israel is synonymous in verse 19 with the household of God. So the commonwealth of Israel is the household of God. How do we become part of the congregation of Israel or the commonwealth of Israel? By faith. It all hinges on our faith. Having been built, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Yeshua the Messiah himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So all of this, Paul is saying, you become part of the commonwealth of Israel by your faith. And this is the same Paul who he says over in the book of Philippians, he says if anybody could have been saved by keeping the law perfectly, he said it would have been me. He said, but I couldn't do it. He said, that's not how it works. He said, all those things that I put my, my, you know, put so much favor and put so much credence into, he said it was nothing because it didn't lead me to Messiah. That's what, that's what he's trying to say here. He's saying your faith is what's going to lead you to Messiah. And that's going to help you to become grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. So it all hinges on faith. So if we are the children of Israel, if we are the commonwealth of Israel, if we're the household of God, what does that mean? And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at. What does that mean? to be part of the congregation of Israel, to be part of the children of Israel, to be part of the household of God. Well, let's, let's just kind of take a... Before we go to Exodus 19, that's where we're going to start, I want to take a detour to Leviticus 23. Because <clears throat> Leviticus 23 talks about the feasts and the festivals, but I like how it begins. Sam, let me get back to you on that one real quick. All right, Leviticus 23, and it says, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them. So notice this commandment, or this is being spoken to the children of Israel. And what is the Lord saying to the children of Israel? He's saying, Keep the feasts of the Lord. You shall proclaim... The the feasts of the Lord, proclaim them to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. And then he goes through all the feasts and the festivals. But he's saying, speak to the children of Israel. doesn't say speak to um, the physical descendants of Israel. He says, speak to the children of Israel. And so we saw from all the writings and all the different scriptures we put together, that's talking about those who came to the Lord by faith. The children of Israel. Those who are grafted into Israel by faith. All right, let's go to Exodus 19. Wow. 
All right. Before I do this, Sam asked a question. He said, good works equal obedience to Torah. What are the verse references? One that comes to my mind is what Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes. So keep a finger in Exodus 19. And I want to take a side trek to Ecclesiastes 12. So Sam... um, this will be one. Yep. Um, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Those are good ones. Talking about faith without works is dead. I like Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14 because it, it tells you kind of the purpose of life. This is what God expects of us. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And that word matter is the word devar. Devar means word. So you could say matter, you could say word, but I feel like this sums up all of the scripture. So let us hear the conclusion of the whole word, the the entirety of scripture. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. So that means when we fear God, when we obey God and we keep his commandments, this is man's all. This is what, what we're supposed to do. And then verse 14, to get to your question about obedience to good works, it says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So if we have good works and keep his commandments, judgment day is going to go a whole lot better for us. I go to Revelation 22, 12 and 15. Revelation 22, 12 through 15. 12, the first two works, and 14 and 15 tell you which are good and which are bad. Right. All right, Revelation 22, we'll read verses 12 through 15. It says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega. If you read it in the Hebrew, it's the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, for they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Those are the good works. Here are the bad works. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So those who have faith in him and those who keep his commandments are going to like Judgment Day a lot better. But those who refuse to keep his commandments out of faith, those who choose not to walk with him, says outside are dogs and sorcerers sexually immoral, and whoever loves and practices a lie. And then Luke mentioned James chapter 2. So let's flip over to James chapter 2 real quick. I want to make sure I answer Sam's question before we move on. Starting verse 14, James 2, 14 says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? That means just a declaration of faith with no works or an empty declaration of faith. Verse 15 says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, if you have faith, then I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Which is easier to do, show your faith without works or show your faith with works? That's what James is saying. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or complete. So what made his faith complete? Was it just him saying that he loved God? Or it was his obedience? Verse 23, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Sam, I hope that answers your question. He says thank you, so I'm assuming it does. All right, Exodus 19.6. So if we're the commonwealth of Israel, or the children of Israel, or the household of God, what exactly does that mean? So Exodus 19.6. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. It says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountains, saying, you shall, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So notice the if then. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me. So what would cause that obedience? Love and faith. Notice in verse 6 it says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those words sound very familiar, don't they? So, the Lord is referring to the children of Israel as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying, you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If they do what? They come to him by faith and they enter into covenant with him with him by faith. Does it say that he's going to do it, do it anyway? No. It says they have to enter in by faith. Yes. Right, but what? But what? He said, remember me and I mean, he never had a chance to do any works of faith. Right, he but just he believed. Yeah, he had a declaration of faith and he had faith. But that's what you would kind of right? Right. But that is the fact that is those people will still get to heaven in the last moment. They may not have great rewards, but Right. And that's what I just want to have that no that argument. Right. So I mean if you have the opportunity to live for God, do it. You know, and that's that's what God yeah. is, is, is saying here. He's saying don't you don't have that promise of a deathbed confession. So I mean God knows the faith the the thief that was hanging on the cross next to Messiah, he knew that his faith was real. Because if he would have just been blowing smoke and said, you know, oh Lord, remember me in paradise, he would have, he wouldn't have told him, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. So he knew the faith of that man. He knew it was real. 
and and I guarantee okay, thank you, you so much. you're welcome and I guarantee you if that thief would have had the opportunity to come off the cross his works would have followed amen and Daniel, this is Sue. Hey. When did work have been um, recommending the other thief on the cross? Say that again, I'm sorry. Wouldn't his work then have uh, reprimanding the other thief on the cross? We deserve this, Yeshua doesn't. Right, yeah. I guess you could look at it like that because he did, he rebuked the other, the other thief, yeah. And that would have been a good work, yep. That's true, thank you. You're absolutely right. So, here in Exodus 19, it talks about the children of Israel being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation because of their faith. That's also what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. So, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 9 through 10. But we have to start in verse 7 to get the context. Because God doesn't just call everybody a, a nation of priests and a holy nation, all that. Look at verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, Therefore, to you who what? Believe. Believe. Those of you who have faith, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, that means those who don't have faith. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, talking to the ones who believe. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So notice those words that were spoken to Israel are the same words that Peter echoes here in 1 Peter and says but in verse 10, but now are the people of God. So those who enter into the, that become the children of Israel by faith, it says they are now the people of God. So those same promises that were given in Exodus 19, are the same promises that are given here in the New Testament. So do these promises of God change? No, they do not change. So when we become God's people, God gives us the same promises. But what's that key word? If. If we believe. If we obey. And we do it out of love and we do it out of faith. All right, let's go to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, verse 44. Real quick. It says, Now this is the Torah which Moses set before the children of Israel. So who was the Torah set before? Was it given to everybody or was it given to the children of Israel? It says the, the Torah which was set before the children of Israel. 
So the Torah was set before the children of Israel because they entered into covenant with God. So when they entered into covenant with God, God said, all right, here are the terms of the agreement. Here's the Torah. Here's what I expect you to do now that you have entered into covenant with me. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29.1. It says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So this is a renewed covenant. So this is the people renewing the covenant with the Lord. Do you think there are going to be new commandments in here? Or will it be the same commandments? The same expectations that God had for the people back in the at Mount Sinai. Same, Same ones. All right, let's go to verse 29. Same chapter, verse 29. So these are the words to the children of Israel. Verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children for how long? Forever, that we may do all the words of this Torah. So if Torah has been abolished, and is no longer relevant, then what does that mean about these words here? That means these words are a lie. Are these words a lie? It says, these, the words that are belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And then when you continue down to chapter 30, chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, it says, Now it shall come to pass... When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord with your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which you, your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Here's why. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the words that were given here, this is future. This hasn't happened yet. But what is God's what when God regathers his people into the kingdom? What is his expectation? What is he wanting these people to do? He's wanting them to circumcise their heart because they love the Lord their God. So he's want, the covenant was renewed with the children of Israel and the Lord's desire was for them to enter it because they wanted to. That's circumcision of the heart. That's out of faith. And that's God's intention for, the, for His people, the commonwealth of Israel, the household of God, the children of Israel. Psalm 148. Psalm 148. <clears throat> Verse 14. It says, And he exalted the horn of his people. 
the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. So there are several phrases here that are synonymous with each other. So the children of Israel are the saints or his saints. And the children of Israel are also a people near to him. So when we talk about the children of Israel being a people near to him, those are people that come near to him out of what? Out of faith, out of love, because they want to. And we read back in, in Deuteronomy 30, because they're circumcised of the heart. They do it because they love the Lord their God. So his saints, the children of Israel, a people near to him, all of those are synonymous terms. All right, let's go to Jeremiah 16. What else do we, do we see if we are the children of Israel? What exactly does that mean? So that means we're considered a saint. We're a people near to him. We're the people of God. Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15. Jeremiah 16, 14 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall be no more that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the lands which he has driven them, for I will bring them back into their land which I have gave to their fathers. So what do the children of Israel inherit? The land promised to them. So the children of Israel inherit the land. Hosea 1. Hosea 1, verses 10 through 11. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. That shows you how many people are grafted in, saved by faith, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, lo, a me. It shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And remember, Hosea named one of his sons Jezreel. And Jezreel has a double meaning. Jezreel can mean God scatters. So when so think of it like seed. When you scatter seed, it just goes everywhere. So when God is speaking in judgment, then God scatters. But that word Jezreel or Yisrael is how you say it in Hebrew can also mean God sows. So when the people repent, what does God do? He sows them back into the land. So depending on the state of the people, God's either going to scatter them or God's going to sow them. So when does God sow his people into the land? It's when they repent. And that's how they can become as numerous as the sand of the sea. All right, stay in Hosea, go to chapter 3. Read verses 4 and 5. 
It says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. What do you suppose that is? Aharit Hayamim. So in the end of days is when they ultimately come and seek the Lord. Talking about in the latter days, the Aharit Hayamim, that's a reference to the Messianic kingdom. That's referring to the, the end times, the end of days. But when it says that the children of Israel will abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, they'll have nobody to turn to but who? God. They can't turn to their idols. They won't have a humanly king. They won't have anybody to turn to. So what does that mean? When, they, when they've hit rock bottom, who's the only one they can turn to? God's the only one that they can turn to. So the children of Israel will fear the Lord in the end of days when they realize that idols and lifestyles of lawlessness do not bring blessing. All right, let's conclude with Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. So we just spent some time looking at what characterizes the children of Israel. We are the children of Israel. We are the... The, the assembly of God if we live by faith and we are grafted in by faith. So Hebrews 10, 25. Verse 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day do you think that they're talking about? That's the day of the Lord. That's judgment day. So in verse 25 where it says the assembling of ourselves together, that gathering, that assembling of ourselves together, that word in Greek is episunigoge. Spell it E-P-I-S-Y-N-A-G-O-G-E. Episunigoge. And it comes from the word sunigoge. But it means a gathering. A gathering together. So when we when we think about what we learned today about the word synagogue, the word synagogue, is it a group of unbelievers coming together or is it a group of believers? A group of like-minded believers coming together for what reason? To exhort one another, to build each other up, to, to help learn the word from one another. And in verse 25, do you see the word forsaking? That word forsaking is... Um, not forsaking, that is a present participle. That means it's ongoing, continuous action. God never expects us to stop forsaking ourselves together. To, get, to come together to learn the Scripture. So we're to continue gathering together to learn the Scripture, especially as we get closer to the day of the Lord. Because one of the purposes of getting together, let's flip over to 1 Thessalonians. It's so important that we understand and we study the scriptures and learn the scriptures and come together as like-minded believers to read and study the word. Because of 1 Thessalonians 5, there's two camps in 1 Thessalonians 5. 
1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1, it says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. That term, the, the times and the seasons, refers to the feasts and the festivals of the Lord. But concerning the feast and the festivals of the Lord, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why? Because they're keeping them year in and year out. And there's a reason for that. Verse 2 says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Do you want to be part of the they group? No. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. What's the difference between the they and the you? The ones that are in the you group that are not caught off guard are the ones who are keeping the feast and the festivals. So we know, we understand the signs of the times as they come along and we understand why or why these things are to happen. Because when we read in Leviticus 23 that the children of Israel were to keep those feasts forever and were grafted into the children of Israel, it is our duty, it's our expectation to remember these things and all the other things that God expects us to do.